Dr. David Lochran trained as a surgeon before joining Babylon Health as an AI clinician and then founding Concentric Health. Concentric is digitizing the consenting of patients prior to surgery, essentially bringing traditional paper consent forms into the 21st century. It started as a surgical consent aid memoir, which Dav made as a junior doctor. He's since raised over $1 million and Concentric has been adopted by NHS trusts such as Imperial College and Chelsea and Westminster. We talk about what it's like to be CEO as an introvert, the challenges and the opportunities in digitizing consent and distributed leadership. I hope you enjoy. You were never really this um, flashy extroverted salesman with the, the white veneers who you think of but you're potentially a little bit more introverted. How's your experience been of operating in this domain where you're having to be on sales calls all the time, presumably, and really selling your heart out? Yeah, so just uh, just hang on. I'm just going to step out of my Ferrari. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, def- it's definitely interesting. And, um, yeah, you know, there, there's this spectrum, right, between being a clinician, like a pure clinician and a business person and the kind of serial entrepreneur. And... Everyone's somewhere between that spectrum. You know, anyone who's in this digital space, digital health space, regardless of that's you know, if you're if you're a you know med student playing around with some stuff, you know, with some you know entrepreneurial thinking versus you know serial entrepreneur trying to trying to learn some digital health stuff. So I will I will always kind of say that I'm definitely more on that clinician side of that spectrum, but have had to learn you know certain amount of things from a from a business perspective and some of that is like nuts and bolts of like you know how does a business work from like accounting and that kind of stuff and then also just the other stuff that serial entrepreneurs and business people are really really great at so that's you know effective storytelling it's about you know being you know comfortable in in you know big audiences and sales and that kind of stuff and and yeah to, to be honest as a uh, you know those who kind of know in terms of introverts and extroverts so so i will spend quite a bit of my day being more extroverted than my normal kind of natural self is and so out of that time actually i'm probably more introverted than i would kind of naturally be so you know i'm, I'm outside of that uh, kind of needing to put myself out there and demoing and, and that stuff actually i'm very happy you know doing very you know uh, having a pretty simple life outside of that because I, I kind of need that downtime and um, you know when I kind of look at you know look at a full diary of demos and that kind of stuff I'm like oh great I'm gonna have a really chilled evening after that because I'm gonna I'm gonna need it so yeah and I, I, I definitely kind of advocate for um not feeling as if you need to be that kind of classic business person and um, I think there's so much value as a clinician it's being your kind of authentic self but also being authentic to those who you are talking to so it's really definitely valued in this digital space particularly if you're kind of selling to clinicians or kind of uh, not kind of necessarily selling but selling the idea and selling the kind of benefits to clinicians Um, the fact that you're a clinician and you kind of get it and you're in that kind of mold in inverted commas is is really valuable and you know, in many ways, I would pro- I would probably be less effective as a business person in this space, as a classic business person. I want to give a bit of context to informed consent and consent in surgical procedures. And one of the landmark cases is Mon- Montgomery and Lanarkshire, in which 
essentially a, a diabetic lady gave birth to her baby with through a normal vaginal delivery. And unfortunately, uh, the baby um, has a complication and that results in the baby having cerebral palsy. And then what happened is that she asked her obstetrician, what are the complications? And he'd not mentioned that one, this was one of the complications. And then this goes to become a big landmark ruling in which uh, the obstetrician sued and they, they side with her essentially. And it, it shifted things a bit with, with consent and surgical consent. And the reason I bring that up is A, to give context, but B, to emphasize the point of how important consent is both from a medical legal standpoint from the patient's perspective and to surgeons as well and the question i have based on that uh, two questions actually the first is how has this sort of atmosphere influenced what you've done and the second question is that i can imagine that operating in this space of consent is a lot more different to say you had a, a skincare company that was tackling routine referrals for um, acne or something. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's quite high stakes. It almost seems like consent is very sacrosanct and interfering with it would come with its own challenges. Uh, so two big questions for you. Yeah, so it's definitely a, a complex space and, and great summary of the case there. Um, so I will sometimes look at this and say, actually, you know, what Montgomery and that case did was more just kind of bring them the the legal standpoint into line with what you know modern approaches and kind of opinions and thoughts are really so do would anyone disagree with someone who says that a decision about treatment should be a decision between the patient and the clinician and that the patient should probably have sight of things that they would think are important to make that decision. I think you'd struggle to find many people um, who would disagree with that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and that was aligned to, you know, the GMC standpoint well before Montgomery, but but the kind of legal position because of some quirks in terms of how the legal, uh, you know, uh, framework works it took a little bit of time to kind of to follow that through but you know the focus of that and in, indeed other things that have followed so there are some other cases Stefan versus Johnson and some of the inquiries like the Patterson inquiry and um, more recently have all kind of you know shifted the legal standpoint the kind of best practice standpoint to saying okay let's let's make sure this, these are shared decisions let's make sure that you know as a clinician you know, it's, it's a, you know the, the concept of shared decision making is is that you are going to make better decisions about care when you involve the two experts in the room. The patient is the expert in themselves, you know, what's important to them, what their priorities are, what their preferences are. And the clinician is the expert in the medicine, you know, the guide, the one who can make sense of it, kind of distill communicate you know make make it possible for that patient to engage in that decision making because often it's a very difficult you know space and you know historically it's kind of felt too complicated and you know patients have kind of taken off their hat and said you know i don't this is too complicated for me i can't really engage with this you you make the decision but there's just you know that increasing awareness over you know 30 years at least really, um, to say, let's utilize those two experts in the room. But there are challenges to get to that point. So that all sounds very sensible. But how do you really get there? Um, needs a number of things. So you need 
kind of clinicians and patients to understand that that's kind of where they're going and to understand that they can both kind of take some of that risk as well. So it's not a kind of one-sided risk side. It's it's both kind of understanding some of the nuance and understanding some of the risks. And and that decision might not always be be right. And and, and that's kind of a shared decision between the two. Um, and then also, you know, system effects absolutely get in the way here so often. So we know that, you know, when you're having lots of these, you know, shared decision-making or consent conversations, they are often in pressurized scenarios you know, the vast majority of these consent conversations and, and kind of consent documentation are still happening on the day of surgery, like half seven in the morning, you're already in your gown, you've got your bottom out in your gown, you know, it's kind of, it's a fait accompli in terms of what's happening. So it's not really, the system often hasn't been set up to have these kind of good quality conversations, you know, with time to consider and you know there are opportunities for digital to support that so when you think about that process you know you might have a you know 10 minute consultation there's loads to get in there and and there might not be an opportunity for a kind of second clinic you know to to bring that back together and kind of bring some decisions together you might go from you know one clinic appointment straight into a day of surgery and some of that decision making will still end up you know being on on the day of surgery or the documentation of it and a new information presented on the day of surgery so that's kind of really challenging but you know, digital gives an opportunity to support that in a way that, you know, Royal College of Surgeons came out a number of years ago saying, you know, we should have a, you know, a second clinic appointment added in into that process somewhere. But the reality was that we just didn't see that at all. Like who could just say, right, let's double our like outpatient clinics. Right. How, how do you do that? Like no one knew how to do that. Um, and so you end up with this kind of 10 minute, like bang, 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 give you loads of information, make a quick, quick decision, put you on an operating list, go through. Um, and it kind of becomes quite transactional in that way. But with, you know, digital transformation of those processes, you can say, well, let's use that 10 minutes more valuably. So there's you know 99.99% of your kind of time as a patient between needing a like operational kind of you know being referred in to secondary care and that kind of stuff through to day of surgery is not in a clinic in front of your clinician but that doesn't mean that you can't be engaging with that decision understanding kind of understanding uh, how different options might impact you and what the likely outcomes are and that kind of stuff you still need a guide and that's what those kind of appointments are and so for me the the aim of considering in many ways is to is to say how do we support that journey outside of consultation and um, as well as inside consultation but moving some of that 10 minutes of consultation to to a conversation to a shared decision making conversation not me as a clinician just kind of bang 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 wrote repeating all the stuff that i needed to get out in my in my 10 minutes and um, and isn't that just a, so much kind of a nicer idea that you can have a conversation both in terms of the quality of care that that kind of offers but also just from a like clinician well-being perspective like isn't it more interesting as a job to have conversations with people and come to some decisions and kind of understand the nuance rather than just having to spend all of your time just remembering these list of things you have to kind of get out before your your next patient arrives if i think of a really bad consent system which 
might be as again you described um you're being wheeled into theater uh and and as the anesthesia kicks in someone says by the way uh do you consent to this and gets your signature and then and, and then the operation happens you know from a from an efficiency and logistical point of view that's actually a very good system because it takes two minutes and it's got a hundred percent uh sign off rate and takes very little time but i'd imagine that once you start changing things within this and i would be curious about your experience here that you might notice that if you make the consent process better in terms of for the patient and things like that, that actually you might create more workload because now suddenly it's this ongoing conversation. Um, you might get less of an immediate, yes, here's my signature and more of a, I want to speak to someone about this, this and this, and then I'll consent. And it might actually, from an efficiency point of view, slow things down. Is that something you've noticed at all? Yeah. So it's definitely um, interesting when we look at the business cases um, you know, how does this really work? So I, my approach has always been to say, in terms of the consent process, um, overall, we probably expect the amount of time you spend on that kind of consent conversation and kind of the, the, the bits that go around that to probably be about the same. So you're hopefully moving some of those parts of the process out. So say you might, you know, go through and have that conversation and go through the concentric information in person, but you might move the signature and um, you know that kind of more transactional bit out of clinic because there are benefits to that because you can say, right, we've walked through this information. Now I'm going to send it to you and um, you're going to have time to look through it, share it with others and then and then kind of do that kind of transaction signature bit um, in your own time. But that you know probably just unlocks some more time for, for conversation. It's not necessarily that you're going to have an eight-minute consultation instead of a 10-minute consultation. Um, and so the business cases generally, what we what these business cases generally look like is that um, it's a it's pretty much um you know, um, net equal at day one. So the cost of introducing Concentric generally is about the same as the paper costs because that would be, you know, paper costs for, you know, purchasing these consent forms, maybe some patient information leaflets, maybe scanning those into records and that kind of stuff. And then um, we have reasonable confidence that you're going to save money over the medium term because you're going to reduce the medical legal risk um, because of the documentation and the kind of standardization and, and that kind of stuff. But the proof is slightly in the pudding in terms of that, because just, you know, these legal processes take a long time to, to go through. And so, you know, have has this um, gone through a number of big court cases yet? No. So, we you know, we haven't seen that just by virtue of, you know, these being new products. Um, but what we have seen is that there are other efficiencies. So it might not be that you've reduced, you know, two minutes in your consultation time, but there is an opportunity to reduce things like day of day of surgery cancellations and delays because of, you know, lost consent forms or not knowing where someone is in that process or thinking the consent's been done but it hasn't and those delays. And then also there's, you know, there's a small number um where something is cancelled on the day because you know there's some new information that's shared or there's some kind of something that wasn't brought up because they haven't had that more in-depth consent conversation and, and sharing information earlier and so that's a small number but it's actually a pretty expensive number because you know cancelling theatre slots is, is super expensive like theatre time is really really expensive so you don't need to have that bigger a percentage of or, or that bigger number of cancellations to actually you know blow the cost of introducing concentric as a kind of subscription out of the water quite quickly and um, so that's kind of how the how the efficiencies look like and you know particularly as we think about ramping up 
you know, people are currently talking about, you know, getting beyond pre-pandemic levels of, of activity, you know, those marginal gains are actually pretty um, crucial in terms of, you know, being able to get to, you know, 110% of BAU or whatever you're trying to get to. Dad, feel free uh, to answer this in as much detail or as little detail as you want. But I was really curious about your experience in getting a product integrated within uh, NHS hospitals and what those kinds of conversations look like. Because in my mind, it seems pretty obvious that consent will one day be digital. It, it seems like a foregone conclusion. But what, what are those conversations like? How easy is it to get a product put into the NHS? Yeah, so it will be of no surprise to anyone that there are challenges doing things with with the NHS in inverted commas. Clearly, this is not one organisation. This is, um, you know, hundreds of organisations. Um, you know, we have conversations with about, you know, 150 acute um, NHS trusts in, in England. And um, they definitely come with their challenges. You know, we know that they will often have very long sales cycles, you know, lots of decision points before you get to the kind of, you know, I often talk about the kind of first, uh, the, the, the and, and the first deployment is clearly the, the one that's most challenging. There's, you know, that first trust has to um, actually have a lot of trust, <laughs> pardon the kind of pun, um, to go with something that no one else has gone with. Um, there's, you know, lots of due diligence in terms of that. And so, you know, when we were doing our first deployment, I kind of use the analogy of, of a computer game, you, you know, you know, you're going through some processes and then you come to a, a board and you you think that's kind of a boss level and, and then you get through that boss level and then there's another few things and then there's another boss level and you, you're never quite sure who the kind of big boss is and when what the, the kind of final sign-off thing, which, you know, you when you've completed the game is. Um, uh, so, so that was definitely the kind of experience of, of those first couple. I think once you've got past that point, there's there's a lot of confidence, especially if those are big trusts and kind of well-known brands, that that brings some inherited confidence. <clears throat> and this clearly there are still processes, and, and everyone has their slight kind of quirks in terms of how their you know, information governance processes and that kind of stuff happen. But it definitely streamlines, uh, and to the point where we now are doing you know, eight, nine, 10 deployments in parallel. Um, and those integrations are all kind of going going through at the same time. So um, slow burn, but I think once you've got there, there isn't, you know, that much in theory that kind of blocks the process being reasonably scalable going forward. So, so you know, I hear lots of people saying, oh, and, and you know, I'm avoiding the NHS. I'm not touching with the barge pole because of X and Y. And, and I kind of say, well, you're probably missing a trick there, to be honest. Um, yes, it's not a you know really quick one to get into straight away. And, and yes, obviously, it's not you know national things from day one. It, it's absolutely not. Um, but these are big organisations, you know, decent sized contracts. Um, once you get through those first few, there's plenty of fast followers out there that will that will kind of jump on that um, with you. And I think you just have to be um, clever in the way you do some of this stuff. So these are big organizations and um, often are not the most efficient or kind of effective in terms of their structures and um, 
you know, I think one of the things that we've learned is to be kind of more clear in terms of our delivery and, and our kind of our plan of how do you introduce this into an organization so that each organization doesn't feel as if they have to kind of solve all the problems themselves. So we come and say, okay, we've done this quite a few times now. Here's here's what this generally looks like. Clearly tweak this to to your own setup and you know the nuances of of how you're set up. But this is probably what we would suggest. And so that gives it much more structure. You know, it, it can kind of be very clear about what decisions need to be made early on in the journey. So you don't end up in this kind of you know, quagmire of meeting after meeting where you're not quite sure if any decisions are really being made. And so um, I think that's the that's the challenge for me. Doing things well in the NHS is about saying um, work hard and, and, and be prepared to go through, you know, the, you know some pain for those first ones and um, but once you're through that you probably open quite a lot of doors and there's lots you know as we said this is kind of 150 or more acute organizations which can follow um and try and be really effective with um with how you do this stuff because these are big organizations uh, lots and lots of people lots and lots of stakeholders so if you can be really clear then that makes it easier for you but it also makes it easier for them on their side because they can go great these these guys kind of know what they're doing and um, here's a plan you know here's what our project manager needs to deliver on and um, let's not try and reinvent the wheel every time throughout your career have there been any habits or ways you've approached things that you think have been helpful yeah so i think so i think one of the things that i um took away from my that kind of year as a leadership fellowship was the kind of power of distributed leadership and that's not always easy but if you can uh, you know see yourself as a group of eagles and, and in many ways in a, in a small startup that kind of has to be um but it's it's giving each of person in in your team however big and or big or small the kind of space the autonomy to be creative you know be able to make decisions and uh, you know even looking at, at, at that babylon experience and um, going from you know 80 to 800 people and the challenges that had from going from you know a, a setup where everyone knew everyone and everyone kind of had a feel of you know competence or kind of what that person was working on and, and that kind of stuff to to 800 people and and the kind of structure and organization that ends up um, coming as part of that and i quite like the the idea of um amazon's two pizza team so the kind of idea that you always have these kind of functional units of you know four to six people these are american two pizzas uh, because of uh, because of amazon um but you have these kind of functional teams of four to six units which for the vast majority of the time they they can kind of make their own decisions they function as a unit they you know there might be four core members but there's you know maybe two that kind of come in and out or there's you know a, a group of people who come in and out of that team but there's not you know this you know huge layers of going up and down to make decisions and uh, and so if you can instill that approach and have the trust in those teams you know either the individuals in those teams or those teams as functional units then it makes for a you know a more effective approach but also a more enjoyable thing you know so you know what do you want from you know 
a, a job? Well, you want to be doing something that's meaningful. And that's why we're seeing so many developers, you know, coming into health tech, you know, in in the, you know, two companies, I think, you know, Concentric and, and Babylon. Um, I've recently worked at... Uh, you know, it's very, very noticeable that there are a huge number of really, really bright developers um, who want to do things in health tech. And that's just a such an opportunity for for us in healthcare. Um, you know, people are coming from Gamble Tech or, you know, wherever, and they're saying, actually, do you know what? I really want to do something that, that, that really kind of means something. Um, and that's just an unbelievable opportunity for, for us who, you know, are interested in healthcare. Um, to to grab and and grasp, but yeah, you know, autonomy, creativity, working working in something that 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 is meaningful. And if you can try and keep that kind of those factors at the core of of whatever you're doing and the structures that you're putting in place, I think you're you're in a in a good place. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.